Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news and other stuff. The notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh19. We have four hosts this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, weekly since 1994, and the online, offline, viral, getoutofhellfree.com. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, and I make mobile games, mostly for iOS. You can find those at clevermedia.com. I also host and am the producer of the video tutorials at macmost.com. I'm Kevin Savitz, the founder of faxzero.com, a site that lets you send faxes online because that's something people still need to do. And as of today, we've sent 16.9 million faxes. Crazy. Wow. And I'm Leo Notenboom, Chief Question Answerer over at AskLeo.com. I'm also the publisher of a couple of non-techie sites, notallnewsisbad.com. I call it a daily antidote for everything else because God knows there's a lot of everything else. And HeroicStories.org, twice weekly stories of people just being good people. So um, before we get into this week's stories, uh, a quick recap of interesting things we did this week. Uh, Kevin, you're actually first on our list. Why don't you go first? Yeah, I did something, uh, a, a podcast episode that I'm, I'm really proud of um, for Antic, which is uh, the Atari 8-bit podcast where I, I normally talk about uh, Atari computers. And I did an episode, uh, see, I, you know, I love old computers and I also love musical theater. <laughs> and I found out um, <laughs> some time ago about uh, a, a musical uh the play called Bits and Bites, which came out in 1983, and it was was put on by a uh, South Coast Repertory Theater in Southern California, and this uh, group of five actors went from school to school and put on this 45-minute musical play to teach about computers, and uh, (laughs) um, so I was just fascinated with this. And I managed. I found the play, and I, I read it, and then I interviewed three people uh, who were involved in creating the play. Uh, one of the writers, the, the composer, and then uh, one of the actors in the play. And I did all these interviews, and I packaged it up into a podcast episode that I am just super proud of. And uh, managed to the, the composer uh, had on reel to reel tape. She had the music for the play, so oh, she. Cool. She digitized it for me, and so now the, the episode uh, has uh, all this this music, and it's just like just just it's really these songs about like you know about what a computer is, and like and, and what a computer is good for, and like oh, but a computer is not a good friend, you know, a computer is good for calculating, but doesn't substitute for being a friend. And so there's like a song called like Who's Gonna Love You When the Power's Blown. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I, I did that this week, and uh, I just that's my my big. I'm happy about that. So. You, you should mm-hmm. encourage them to get that soundtrack up on uh, iTunes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fairly simple and straightforward to actually put your own music uh, into an iTunes account. And <laughs> oh, yeah, I should do that. Yeah. So um, yeah, the, the the songs are surprisingly good. Um, a little out of date in, in parts. There's there's a, a a song where like the what is it like the, the typewriter and the adding machine are like singing and complaining about how they're obsolete now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, we've got floppy drives, so those right. are apps obsolete. That's, that's true. 
And yet we're still sending faxes. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, people are really, I mean, yes, we're still sending faxes, but we've, people have, most people have, have moved to using uh, online fax services like Fax Zero, and there's many others. Um, no, there are just, there's only uh, Fax Zero. There's only Fax Zero. There's only the one. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, with fax machines, you still have to do with paper and, and, you know, restocking supplies and, and ink and stuff, and there's waste. And yeah, I mean, most like uh, medical offices and government offices have switched to actually online faxing services. So it's it's still a thing, but it's it's really has changed. You know, the the curly paper fax machine has is is as obsolete as the typewriter. I think. I hope. I remember thermal paper. Yeah. Well, and the. the- Main reason I think that faxes are are still a big thing is that the Health Insurance Privacy and Portability Act, HIPAA, requires faxing over email and things like that. You cannot email private medical records, but you can fax it. If I understand it right, that's under the assumption that a fax is more difficult to intercept and or to forge uh, both of which are laughably wrong so right so there you go yeah um another news in case anybody was wondering i mentioned a couple weeks ago that i was trying to set up uh, an eero uh in order to get internet across the street mm. to a family member's house um and that didn't work just throwing it whatever it was just across the street. I, I tried uh, aligning the, the router devices in all sorts of different ways and it, it just didn't work. So, but I have a great new fast, awesome uh, mesh network in my, my own house now that I, I wouldn't have justified otherwise. So that's, so it's working, but it's working for that. It's working for that. It works really well. And I love having the same network upstairs as downstairs, um, which I didn't have before. Um, and it works really well. And it's got like a couple of features I really like, like every morning it automatically does a, uh, a speed test. And then you go to the app and you can see historically how it has done, you know, at the same time every day, you know, I like that 7am every morning, you know, how's, how's the does it very much? It does. It really does. And I think surprising, I to, like look at, look at why. I mean, some, sometimes it's, I'm getting, 800 megabit and sometimes I'm getting 200 megabit. I'm like, what? why, why is this? It's, I'm supposed to have, you know, uh, just dedicated bandwidth. Why, why is it? So I need to look into that and maybe reboot my, my, uh, my fiber router or something. So, um, oh, and I wanted to mention this to you, Leo, cause I, I know that you're, you're jealous of my, uh, no, my, we just hate you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. there's no jealousy involved at all. It's just, loaded. okay. So, uh, I, I went to the uh, CenturyLink is my internet provider, and I went to their their website recently for I don't even remember why, and then noticed that the prices that they were listing for uh, gigabit internet service was way cheaper than what I was paying, and um, I I called them and he was just like, oh yeah, you're paying way too much, and uh, changed my price, and now I'm paying. Sixty dollars less a month than I was for the same internet. <laughs> wow, wow! So, you know, yeah. I think I might be coming up on, my, on on the end of my initial contract. I should probably. I'm with uh, CenturyLink, which is you know same people basically. Yeah, and um, but I'm on a business contract, so and they tend to you know overcharge business. But 
Um, I did get one of those. Can't stop them from sending me promotional emails and and physical mail and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I did notice that one of them said, "Hey, we've got higher speeds in your area now." Mm. So it might be worth you know my at least braving the telephone and talking to someone and seeing what they can what kind of a deal they can do for me now. Yeah. You know, you know that's something I always encourage uh, people to do. Um, you know, whether you have a cable modem or DSL, if you haven't talked to your company in a couple of years, <laughs> call them up because number one, you may be able to get the same thing cheaper, just like Kevin did. Yeah. Right. Uh, sometimes you have an old, old modem and you know, I'm talking about the modem, the thing actually hooked into your DSL or cable, maybe not the same as your router, but the right. actual modem. And sometimes even if you're paying, you've paid for it in the past or, you know, you're paying a certain amount, sometimes they'll, they'll look at that and they'll say, oh, that's really old. We'll just send you a new one <laughs> because, uh-huh. uh, and the new one's got all these better features and it'll, and it'll be a little faster for you and all this stuff because they don't want to support, you know, a 10-year-old modem. And by 10-year-old, I mean, you may have gotten it five years ago, but it actually came out five years before right. that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I see that a lot. I see a lot of, uh, a lot of people that aren't, necessarily like work at home internet people like I am um, who don't pay much attention to what equipment they've got just a phone call and they get all the stuff for free a better you know, faster bandwidth or whatever and it's really worth it yeah and I should probably do the same I think like I said I have to look at the contract I think it was like a two-year contract that I started out with and I'm sure we flipped a month to month after that but um, I think we're coming up on about that time frame uh, mm-hmm. so that would be a good thing for me to check into yeah. I think I've become a believer in just like every once a year or every two years at least, like calling up every one of the companies that you know, your internet provider, your, your satellite TV or cable, your, your, your phone, you know, your mobile phone. And just like, is this, is it still a good deal? Am I still paying the right price for what I'm getting? Cause if they, if they come up with a new plan, they're not going to tell you. No. So no. it's kind of on you just to I've, check in I've, and go, Hey, how's, how, how are we doing here? I've kind of sort of done that occasionally with my mobile carrier. I'm with Verizon and have been for, well, years, years and years and years. Um, and unfortunately, the plan I have right now, which I really, really like, uh, is not something they offer anymore. Mm. And any of the plans that I would switch to, uh, while technically, you know, if you look at it this way, they could be cheaper. But if you look at it that way, they could be a whole lot more expensive or they could bandwidth cap me at some point. So it's not always a given that there's going to be something better. It may be that you want to hold on to what you've got because what you've got doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah, definitely research it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so anyway, those are my, those are my updates. Uh, what about you, Randy? What's your news? I think we lost Randy's audio. It sounded like he went away half mid-sentence. Yeah, there. yeah so, but uh, so what do you got going on, Leo? Why don't we just... Uh, well, ironically, <laughs> given, <laughs> given what, what, what uh, Randy seems to be going through right now, um, I got a new microphone, which is not a really a big deal. Randy and I have been uh, chatting back and forth. I asked him about what he's using. Um, one of the problems I've had here with uh, recording this podcast and with um, recording the, uh, a couple of other things. I was in a conference call. It was done through GoToMeeting the other day. Is that normally um, I can't hear myself through my headphones. So I would speak to the microphone. I could hear all of you guys, but my own voice wasn't coming back at me. And that is 
just weird. I mean, it takes some getting used to. Huh. And it's one of those things where I, um, I probably ended up speaking louder than I needed to. So um, I ended up uh, noticing on, uh, I forget exactly where this came up, um, but Randy is using a newer model of the microphone that I uh, was using. I was using a, a, an Audio-Technica AT2020 USB version. That's what I'm using still. Yep. And uh, Randy's been using the, uh, the AT2020i, I think it is, or Plus, what? which has um, actually acts as both a microphone and um, has a plug for the headphones. So it automatically feeds my voice back into me and plays my system sounds through it. So it's, um, and as it turns out, get it already? I, asked, I asked Randy the question yesterday mm-hmm. and uh, I wasn't joking, Randy, when I, when I texted you something about buy now, I did buy now. As it turns out, Amazon had the option to say, Hey, you want it tomorrow for free? So I did. Awesome. And that's yes, what, I'm, what I'm using right now. So cool. So I far, so good. I'm very pleased. Like I wasn't sure if you heard Randy while you were away, but I actually had a, uh, um, a go-to meeting conference call uh, late last week. And um, I just, you know, it's just annoying not to be able to hear yourself through the, through the headphones. So yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's worth the few dollars and I'm doing it, you know, often enough, especially with this weekly podcast that it, uh, it made sense to invest in, in an upgrade. I've been podcasting so did you use my, Sorry. Did, did you use my Amazon affiliate code? I have no idea who's affiliate. <laughs> I should have. I, I have a shortcut um, stored somewhere which uses, I think it's your affiliate code every time I go to Amazon. But um, Oh, cool. Yeah, but nonetheless, it's uh, for, those not list- for those not aware who are listening, uh, when you um, uh, sell things or when you buy things on Amazon, uh, you can include the affiliate code of the person who uh, referred you to it if they have an affiliate code set up. And they get a cut. It's a small cut. It's usually like somewhere between 1% and 4%. does not in any way affect the price you pay for, a, for an item. The only rule is that you can't um, use your own. So I couldn't like buy it myself and then use my own affiliate code and get an automatic 1% or 5% back. So we kind of use each other's affiliate codes um, to just sort of spread the, it's a tiny percentage, but it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah. And I, I keep Leo's and, and my brother's and a couple other people's codes in a little file. And if I want to give somebody a spiff, I just, especially if I'm buying something expensive. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It actually, it, it can add up a little bit. You know, each of us, we all get a little bit of Amazon affiliate revenue. And, you know, if you've ever noticed on most of our sites, I know that um, on Ask Leo, if I link to something on Amazon, I include the Ask Leo affiliate code so that if somebody happens to buy something, um, because I referred them, then yeah, I get a, I get a little cut of that action. Um, and that's all called out in the um, affiliate and recommendations disclosure, I think, that we're all pretty much required to have linked to from our, from our website and elsewhere. Yeah, it's on my privacy page. Yep. So anyway, so we skipped you, Randy. I went to, uh, to my microphone, obviously, while you were dealing with yours. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what's going on um, that all of a sudden I drop out, but uh, I seem to be here right now. Yep. But the thing that I was going to mention in this section is that uh, I was using my, I, I went into my backup drive. It's a network attached storage unit that had uh, four hard drives. So it had this RAID configuration. So theoretically, if you lost a drive, you wouldn't lose any data. Well, the problem is what happens if the network attached storage unit fails on its own, not, not the drive, but you know, like the motherboard and the thing. And that's oh. apparently what happened because, you know, I had used it like 
minutes before and then I went in to grab something else and it wasn't there. So I popped into the closet and said, oh, it's, it's shut down. So I pushed the power button and nothing happened. So I ended up getting another one, a different brand this time. Um, and I, I set it up for mirroring rather than raid. I mean, mirroring is a, is a type of raid. It, it's one, of, I think it's raid one. And I did that in hopes that if the motherboard dies again, then, you know, I can pop it into a, a different computer or something and maybe get my data back. I didn't so, lose anything critical, right. but I did lose some things that were just inconvenienced me. So, so that's just something to realize that what happens if your backup drive dies, then right. what? Absolutely. And especially a lot of people, in fact, it's one of the common questions I get people and or common assumptions I get is people treat RAID as if it were back up all by itself. And as you've pointed out, there is a single point of failure, the RAID controller, the hard drive. Yep. You know, the, the, and the problem with RAID, of course, is that a RAID controller will format a drive um, in a completely unique way to that controller, which means the drive, you can't just pop the drive and insert it into another machine and be able to uh, recover the data. Yeah, theoretically, I could if I just I'm, got the same exact model of the old one. Oh, yes, yes. If you got the same exact model, and literally that means the same exact model, um, then you should. Which is kind of unlikely, actually. At this point, yeah, you've had that for a few years. Yeah, um, I will caution you: do not place a bet on RAID Zero, uh, that mirroring, um, to actually be something that can transfer to another machine. My belief is that most RAID controllers will still format those drives in a RAID controller kind of way, and um, in something that is not necessarily readable by something other than that exact same RAID controller. Right. You know that my only experience with using a RAID system. I had exactly the same thing happen to me, but it happened to be like within a month of setting it up. Um, you know, it was, I had four drives in that thing that I still have and they still work. So the whole idea of like, oh, this will protect me if one of these drives fails. Well, years and years later, those four drives, none of them have failed. Uh, but the, the name brand RAID system that was like custom for that, uh, that device actually failed. And uh, a, a month later, and um, I lost some data because uh, I fortunately still had my previous backups from before. So I lost about a month's worth of stuff that I had backed up but didn't have current. Anyway, I, didn't, I never bothered to do it again because I figured it was overkill anyway to do my backups to a RAID system. I just do, did my backups to right. a normal drive and have since then switched to online backups as well. So, um, so I didn't have to deal with it. But when Randy asked me about this, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, um, I pointed out, I too used to have a RAID box. I've got a, one of those um, NAS boxes that I, I finally just recycled the hardware. And like you, I have four perfectly good um, drives sitting in my uh, available drives, but unused drives bucket. Um, they're one terabyte a piece, which unfortunately is kind of small these days. <laughs> yeah. Right. But you're right. One uh, RAID for backup seems like overkill. Um, on the other hand, uh, what I do have, and this was on Kevin's recommendation a couple years ago, is I have an eight terabyte um, external box on my Mac that is also RAID, but it's not RAID for backup, it's RAID for speed. It's basically using RAID in a way that makes things operate significantly faster. Uh, yeah, that I think that's the correct be. use for RAID. It's like if you're a video editor, and you want to, at least before SSDs, right. you know, you want to have a big drive, like an eight terabyte drive for video, but you want it to be fast. 
Yep. So use a RAID setup for that. Yep. That's what I ended up doing. And my, uh, my actual backup solution, I still have, you know, a, a, you know, on my local network, a backup machine, but it's like, I called it a Frankenstein machine. It's like a, a third, let's see, I have to go, I think, three desktop machines back in my history. In other words, each time I have a desktop machine and I get a new one, my primary machine, the old one gets repurposed. If I go two steps back, I think that's the machine right now that is sitting in my basement uh, with its cover off, uh, it's got like three hard drives in it, and I think four or five external hard drives attached to it, and they sit on my network, and they are my backup. So I copy things to that thing all overnight, and it actually does some copying on its own, you know, from disk to disk to, again, do some... So it copies bit. the copy? It's kind of a slow mirror. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a very slow RAID zero um, in the middle of the night. It copies one drive to another. And, and that solution, if you know, that machine completely dies, you can transport the drive Absolutely. into something else. Yep. Especially, you know, especially, obviously, the USB ones that are plugged in. Those are trivial. Um, the only uh, constraint I would have on the internal drives is that this is a, a box running Linux. Uh, it's running Linux Mint. But what that means is that those drives would be easily accessible on any Linux device on the planet. I mean, there's a bunch of those. It just would about the only machine I wouldn't be able to, to attach those drives to would be Windows, at least not without some kind of, of you know, file format conversion utility. I'm sure it's out there, but I wouldn't bother. Well, one of the things I brought home with me when I left Jet Propulsion Laboratory was my, we, we each had a, our own DAT tape so that we could take it into the server room, plug it in and do a backup of our machine and then take your DAT tape back to your office. Mm -hmm. And I took that home with me. You have, to have nothing I can read it with, yeah. but I still have it. <laughs> yeah, I used to have a, um, a seven-track reel-to-reel tape from oh, University of Washington, um, which was unique in two ways, especially now. But back then, most of the tapes were nine-track, um, the ones that you would get on your IBM uh, mainframes. Uh, but mine was seven-track because CDC had to be different. And now, of course, I wouldn't know what to do with it if it even, if it even worked. So long gone. And I, aren't those nine tracks like 10 megabytes or something really oh, tiny? Yeah, it's really silly, whatever it is. It's pretty funny. So, Gary, what do you have going on this week? Well, work, as always, working on a game. And, uh, but I thought this would be pretty interesting. I know at least two of you guys play, you know, cribbage every once in a while. Usually, as cribbage is played now, which is on a phone or an iPad or something. Um, and I've decided, since I have a lot of card games, in my repertoire of, of apps that are up there that I, it would be great if I added a cribbage game to that. Um, so and I, I like playing cribbage too. So I, I like making games that I like to play. So I have been building for the last month or so a cribbage app. Um, the interesting thing is that I, uh, there's two parts to it. The interface where you can actually play the game, click on the cards or tap the cards and you know go through the different uh, hands and everything. And that's one part. And the other part is the game AI, which is, you know, the part that makes the computer opponent decide what to play um, in the game. And I, I felt I couldn't do the AI until I actually had the game working so I can actually test it out as I try things. So I built the, the, the player first. And as a placeholder, I put a dumb AI in there. So the, all it did was pick a random valid card out of its hand. You know, we get dealt six cards, it'll pick two at random, 
they go to the crib and then it picks a random valid card for the play every time. Let me guess, best player ever, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, it was, it, have you it, won that, yet, Gary? <laughs> it was, okay, so, so, here's, so to qualify it, I played, I think I, I counted about 50 games during development that I played to test my interface. I won every single one of them, but not by much sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, uh, most of the time I didn't skunk it. You know, didn't, it, it had more than 90 points when I got my 121. Um, and sometimes it was pretty close to winning. Sometimes it would just an- uncannily just play a hand that was just, you know, savage against you. And it's like I had to check to see, is it really just dealing out random cards? And it is. It, you know, and it comes down to the fact that, you know, when you have six cards and you want to pick two of them, there's only 15 options, 15 variations there. So one out of 15 times, it's going to pick the perfect two cards for the crib. And most of the time, it, it got a better than one in 15 chance of picking out, you know, something that's good. And when you're playing the hand, you know, there's one out of four cards to choose from to start. And then one out of three, one out of two, and then there's no choice for the last one. So it's really not that much variation. So when you play hand after hand after hand, you get some hands where you just get beat really bad by this random AI uh, that uh, that just plays whatever card it wants to. So is was calling kind of, it an AI really the right thing at that well, point? Well, I mean, because it was random. a placeholder AI is what it was. <laughs> it was by, you know, I had a function for, you know, here's the AI and the function was just, you know, Pick, pick a random but, card. but even if you program this properly, is it is it really AI? I think that's Leo's real question. Well, no, no, no. Uh, my question, my question yeah, really okay. was: I mean, if all it's doing yeah. is picking random, there's no intelligence involved. Yeah, that's right. that's true. Well, I mean, so you know, yeah, the the so the term game AI is very different than you know AI when you think about movies or TV or Siri or Alexa or whatever. Would you, uh, you like know, game, to play a game? Yeah, the game AI term has been around for a long time, and there's you know books on game AI. There's jobs that are game AI jobs, and there's uh, court you know college courses that are game AI. So game AI is very different. It's nothing to do with you know uh, you know creating some sort of intelligence. It's to do with being able to play chess or checkers or Go or in this case cribbage. Uh, so. Yeah, so it's really interesting. And, and so I tried not to spoil it too much when I wrote my AI. I put some randomness in there. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things about randomness and cribbage is that sometimes you expect, like, if I put down a seven and the opponent has an eight to score two points, uh, you know, you might think, oh, I'll trick it into doing that and I can get a run. But if it's dealing random, you have no idea. You know, it could have two eights, and it could decide not to play them randomly. You know, it could decide you you have fourteen there. It could decide not to play an ace, but you can't go and say, "Well, it didn't play an ace." That means it doesn't have an ace. Nope, it could have an ace. It just because it randomly didn't pick it. It, yeah, it would be uh, really weird to play against that. It, it it was very weird, and it was hard to. There's certain things that you know you you program yourself to to do, and sometimes you get beat because there's just improbable cards that are played, and you end up. You know, the the computer opponent scores a 15 or 31 or gets a run in a place where I, no human would have ended up with that. Um, so that's so, interesting. So I've passed on from that. And I actually have developed the real AI or AIs. I've actually, I, since I didn't really know what I was doing in developing the cribbage AI, I developed three different ones, a, uh, uh, three different strategies. And they're all different players in the game. So 
Um, I, I think you ought to include them all in the game. Oh, they all, they all are. So I want to make sure you're also including the random one. Cause I no, think no, that random one just, it really, it messes with your play so bad. No, that's, that's <laughs> I mean, I think that there are probably people who are interested in playing the game who just want to see how that works. So maybe, yeah. an Easter, maybe I'll do it as an Easter egg somehow, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've got actually, in addition to three AIs developed, you know, to be somewhat smart players, I have a variation on each of them. And um, so I have six different AIs in the game. Uh, so you could kind of play and they, and they, they have very different ways of thinking and they're all imperfect, which is important for game AIs. If you make it perfect, nobody wants to play against that. That's no fun. That's right. So the, the number one criticism I see of cribbage apps is yeah. it cheats. Yeah. That, and that's a, a problem with game AI throughout. Uh, and I see it in some of my other games as well. Um, Number one, the one problem is it cheats because it's too good and it's just the AI is consistent and it's really hard to be consistent as a human and people will complain and certainly my, my game doesn't cheat in any way and I don't think any of them really do unless they specify that they have a really difficult level and it's a cheating level or something. Um, the other problem that people have with card games in particular is uh, the expression of randomness. Um, people, do, uh, It's hard to... F- Think about how random numbers work. And when you're dealing with cards, you shuffle the cards and you deal them out. And sometimes you get a good hand. Sometimes your opponent gets a good hand. And uh, if you think your opponent's getting a good hand most of the time, you tend to think it's cheating. It's giving the opponent better cards than me. Um, Because we tend to think that a random shuffle (laughs) means that like I get a good hand, then you get a good hand, then I get a good hand. You know, that's how our minds think randomness works. But in reality, you might have a string of like seven deals in a row where the, your opponent gets a good hand, because that's how you know random numbers work. They group together and and, and create unlikely patterns. Um, I've had people with my solitaire games com- complain like, since last month, your game has changed, and now it's only dealing me bad hands. What's up? <laughs> and I'm like, I haven't changed that game in a year. You're, you're just experiencing one of these random number things. The same thing happens with uh, in technology with when we track things like diseases. You know, there'll be like some rare disease that has a you know hundred people in the United States get it every year, and they'll look at they'll plot it on a map and say five people in Chicago got this disease this year. Something's wrong in Chicago. And it's like, no, you know, it's just that our brains would think a random distribution of 100 people across the United States would look like a nice, even random distribution. When in fact, there might be no people in California and seven people in Florida, you know, and, and that's how random numbers work. So, so anyway, it's stuff, stuff I have to deal with. I, I hope to have this game uh, ready for testing uh, maybe by next week um, and so people could test it out. And during testing, I'm actually going to record uh, wins and losses for each AI because I have no idea which one's actually going to be better against real human players. Just play them against each other. I thought about that, but that could, that could lead to some misleading results. Real human players who play different strategies and all that, it's going to be interesting right. to see uh, out, of these strat- out of these three different strategies um, and variations, which ones will actually be hard to beat or easy to beat or or whatever so i think it's great stuff i love cribbage and i'm looking forward to this yeah you just need to get an ios device that you could uh, yeah i think i'm gonna get an ipod that uh, ipad excuse me the uh, the new one. Oh, the new the, yeah the new one sure. looks pretty good and yeah. you know it takes the pencil and all that so yeah not 329 that's not too bad 
No, not at all. I will admit to never having played cribbage once in my life. You're not a true geek. Apparently yeah. not. <laughs> it's a fascinating game of numbers. Yeah. Cool. Okie dokie. Well, let's move on. Um, Kevin, get ready with your, uh, yeah, your little stinger say, there. Oh. It's, it's time for this week's Breach of the Week. <laughs> oh, that was bad. That was weak. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so when I mentioned Breach of the Week last week, it was really meant in jest. I didn't really expect this to be a recurring theme. But um, you've got choices. And yet here we are. Um, so the first article I wanted to point to was uh, from Fox Business last week. Uh, the headline is four big companies slammed by data breaches. And in fact, they actually discussed a couple of companies that we had already talked about, uh, most notably Panera Bread, which wasn't so much a breach as it was just leaving the barn door wide open. Um, the interesting ones on that report were uh, Delta and Sears. And then I ran across on one of our local news stations uh, a headline, Best Buy Shoppers Payment Information They May Have Been Exposed in a Data Breach. What I find interesting about those last three, Best Buy, um, Sears, and Delta, is that these three companies did not have a data breach. They all happened to use the same third party, some third party called 247.ai that I'd never uh, heard of before. And like so many things on the internet, we all use third parties to do various services for our businesses. I have a third party that does my credit card processing, for example, that might be the most, um, um, you know, the most comparable to what we're talking about here. So what's happened here is that the third party had some kind of compromise. I don't even know how, how, um, um, how bad a compromise it really, really was. But the fact is it reflected on those three companies and quite possibly many, many more. Um, it's just one of those things where, you know, this may be a recurring theme. This may be one of those things where we're going to hear about breaches on an ongoing basis for a while until a lot of companies get their act together. It's so hard to backport security uh, into an existing infrastructure. It really does need to be baked in from the beginning that um, I think this is a, a problem we're going to be going to be seeing for a while. I don't know if it's going to be a weekly thing here on, on our podcast, but it is something that I think uh, you should not be surprised uh, about hearing on a fairly regular basis in the, in the mainstream press. You guys run into any, uh, any new breaches this week? Well, none this week, but I, I did want to point out that, uh, you know, breaches like the one, um, you know, these ones with where cities and, and stuff, I think, uh, well, actually, we're, we're going to talk a little later about a ransomware attack. Um, we, we've had some interesting things like that happening here in Denver, too. They just seem to be happening all the time now. Uh, government or small, not small, but large businesses <laughs> uh, having these kind of minor breaches and it's almost becoming noise now. Like it's not a big story anymore. Which is unfortunate because yeah. it does mean that the people who really should be paying attention and, and maybe reacting to this, they're not reacting to it anymore. Um, it's uh, like, like the Equifax breach from last year. Um, did anybody really care? Well, because it was everybody, right? I, th I, my feeling with the Equifax breach was that, okay, so not everybody's data is out there. 
Um, so what do we do? There's nothing you can really do. They, they say, Oh, you know, put a, what is it? Hold on your credit or lock your credit, lock lock your credit. It's like at this point, shouldn't just the state of your credit being locked be the standard state, you know? I think so. Yeah, it should be. We, I think theoretically or, or, uh, you know, pragmatically it should be. The problem is there's an incredibly huge business case for these companies for that not to be the case because they don't make money if they can't report your credit and it's the ability to, to deal with your credit in its unlocked state that enables them to run their business to it's their business model. Well, I, I think they can issue credit reports without having it. You know, that's, that's not what's locked. What's locked is the ability to do an inquiry and say, is this Leon Noten boom guy? What, what's his score? Is he worthy of getting a loan or a new credit card or whatever? And that's what gets locked is that inquiry process. Right. And all the companies that are that have a vested interest in getting an answer to that question. In other words, the the folks who want to, you know, create mortgages or issue you credit cards that you don't really need or any of those kinds of things, they're the ones who are set against this. They want that process to be as easy as possible for them, not for you. Yeah, that makes yep. that, that does kind of make sense. I uh yeah. Remember, you, you, you are not the customer here, right? Yeah. You're the I know. I, I absolutely understand that. But, you know, and if you want to get a new mortgage or a credit card, I think there ought to be a, a human in the loop and that human ought to be the applicant, me. Yeah, but I'm not sure where you fit into the loop in today's model. Yeah. I, I do remember once I had a, this was a while ago, but, I, you know, paid for one of the services that automatically locked, did the lock for you know, every six months or whatever it is right. on my credit. And then I walked into a Sprint store to get one of those. Remember those little mobile uh, Wi-Fi networks, you know, you can get it was yep. like a little block and you can carry it around and it was, um, you know, give you a, a Wi-Fi hub hooked into, in this case, Sprint's network. And it was all you know, great. You know, I should have walked in there and paid 70 bucks or whatever and walked out with this thing. But because it was, I was technically getting a, a little mobile account with Sprint, they had to run a credit check because they were going to bill me $30 a month or whatever. Right. And, and so just as I, you know, it's all boxed up and ready to go. They're like, oh, wait, there's a problem. Yeah. And they couldn't figure out what the problem was. It was like 15 minutes of trying to figure out what the problem was, why they couldn't get an okay for me to be signed up for service until I thought, you know, are you trying to run a credit check on me? <laughs> and they're like... Yeah, you know, I think that is part of this process when I press this button. I'm like, oh, that's why. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's yeah. locked. Yeah, um, and I actually went through the steps of locking my my account at all the three credit reporting agencies. Um, and, I mean, I just, I don't use a lot of credit. I just don't. I, I mean, I, I certainly don't need a lot of extra credit cards. I'm not applying for new loans or anything like that. So it's a very low, low pain threshold for me to be in that state. But I'm sure that for a lot of people who are like considering, you know, they do need a credit card or they, they are applying for a mortgage or they are about to buy a car. I mean, that's, it's a hassle for them and it shouldn't be. I mean, it should be a lot easier to keep things both secure for the individual as well as um, still be able to give the individuals the services and the credit that they need and or deserve. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I mean, it, it all comes back to the fact that you and I, you know, getting the loan, we're, we're not the customer. We're, we're the, we're the product. Yeah. So anyway, so the, the, like I said, the breaches of the week, they're going to be, be happening. Um, 
like I said, I'm not promising that we're going to have one every week. Oh, Lord, I hope we don't have one every week. <laughs> but um, the reality is that there will be something. Um, and you know, it's interesting to try and consider how do you turn this into something actionable for the average consumer. And really, the biggest single takeaway from this, from my perspective, and maybe you guys have a different one, is this concept of not using the same password on every site. Because what's happening here is sites are getting compromised. We don't understand what level of security each site uses, but you're at the mercy of their security. And if they happen to store your password in plain text, which is stupid and bad security, but you don't know that they're not doing that, that's the kind of a thing where all of a sudden your favorite password that you're using on five or 10 other sites uh, suddenly becomes exposed, and absolutely the hackers are going to go out there and try it. Did you um, see that thing, Leo, that was going on on Twitter? It was like semi-viral on Twitter where someone complained to their mobile company. I think it was in Australia. It was it was not in the United States. Um, that they had learned that the passwords were were stored in plain text. So they, they tweeted to customer service and the customer service people were basically started telling the consumer that it was perfectly safe and they had a, the most secure network ever and how, how stupid the customer was and to so mind, how, their own, their mind their how, own business. How quickly were they hacked? <laughs> you know. I don't That's know, but awful. yeah. Which terrible. actually reminds me, I didn't put it on the list, but you all know about the site Have I Been Pwned, which will tell you if your email address has been part of one of these breaches. Mm. That site has a sub section, I guess, or another service where you can enter in a password and it will tell you if that password has been in any of the breaches that they're aware of. Now, I get it, you know, giving a third party like this your password may or may not feel icky to you. But it's really interesting, you know, for example, if you type in the password, password, yes, it's been discovered 3 million times, over 3 million times. Um, But the password that I happen to use as one of my, what I consider to be my less secure password, nope, hasn't showed up in any of the breaches, which is kind of reassuring. But it is a really good measure of when you hear about one of these breaches, you might consider taking the password that you used on that site and seeing if that was also part of one of the other breaches that that have I been pwned uh, is aware of. It's I always when I when I change a password, you know that I'm only using in one place. Uh, sometimes I'll go to that site, and now that the password's been changed, I'll put the old password in that I'm not uh-huh. using anymore. Just, uh, just to see. I haven't gotten a hit yet. But, sure. Uh, makes me and feel I will better. say that for all of my, um, you know, as I slowly change passwords due to breaches or due to whatever reason, whatever other reason, um, all of my new passwords are absolutely 20 characters um, or at least the maximum length if it's less than 20 characters because some sites still have a max length that's less than 20. And uh, completely random. I let LastPass deal with it. So all of my passwords are very slowly getting significantly more secure over time. But um, so I'd be shocked, for example, if I dropped a 20 character random password into this and had it come up anywhere. Uh, But it's, uh, it's an interesting process. And it's something that we're going to have to be dealing with for, for some time. So um, Randy, you wanted to talk about the ransomware that actually, you know, falls out of this because a lot of what's going on is, um, you know, these breaches happen for a variety of different reasons. And one of the ways that they happen is one of the way, same ways that uh, ransomware sneaks its way into uh, government agencies. 
Oh, I think we lost Randy. Oh, we lost Randy again. At, okay. the, at that exact moment. That we- <laughs> wow, such timing. Um, for those, again, he we're was prone to a little connection problem today. So, um, yeah, so the issue that, that he'll be bringing up as soon as he returns, because he's been returning relatively regularly, is that um, the Atlanta, um, the city of Atlanta, was uh, the victim of a ransomware attack. Now, uh, what's interesting about it, the article that he points to is at thehill.com called A Ransomware Attack Brought Atlanta to Its Knees and No One Seems to Care. Ransomware, like these hacks, seems to be coming such a regular occurrence that it's no longer news, that it's no longer something that people are paying attention to. Um, I, and- I had jumped the uh, gun a little bit on that story there. Uh, the one I was thinking of is it happened here in Colorado too. The Colorado Department of Transportation, CDOT, uh, in every state's got their DOT, right? Don't right, right. They had a ransomware hit. And fortunately, you know, the bad thing they did was, of course, they had a system weak enough to get hit by that. The good thing they did was it was a separate system from some of their critical systems. So instead of traffic lights and, you know, highway on-ramp lights and things going haywire, um, they, they, it was just some, some of their backend, like, uh, you know, in-office computers. Right. So right. all the systems were working great, um, but the, uh, you know, the, in their offices, they apparently for days, days and days, and this happened to them twice within a short period of time, uh, they were back to pencil and paper, uh, you know, running things between offices and to, to get. So Randy, done. we went ahead and dove into the ransomware um, uh, story that you were going to talk about. Do you want to uh, go ahead and take it? Well, I, the biggest thing for me on this is that um, in Baltimore, that attack happened within four hours of a technician making a change to the firewall. That's how on top of the things that these guys are that they it took down their 911 center. Yeah, Ouch. the fact that they're taking down things like 911 centers is really scary to me. And hospitals, yeah. too, getting hit with this. Yep. Hospitals. Yeah, hospitals as well. Um, it's, that's really, really frightening. It's funny because I have a couple of reactions to, to most of this. Um, one is that uh, ransomware, uh, in an operational sense, I get, you know, in a day-to-day operational sense, it's a big deal. But there shouldn't be any significant data loss if you're backing up properly. They're just shouldn't be. There's no excuse. If you're losing, like in the story that you pointed to, Randy, at the Hill, uh, one council member lost 16 years of data. Yeah, no it's ex- just insane. That's yeah, there's, there's so no stupid. It's not even funny. Um, so that's, that's a problem, but, but it's probably not an uncommon problem. Um, the other is that, you know, I, I hear from a lot of people and they get, they're very concerned about ransomware, which on one hand is good because Everything that they're worried about, they should be worried about because ransomware is nothing more than malware. It's just malware that happens to have a significantly destructive um, uh, uh, payload. Uh, If you can manage to keep yourself safe from ransomware, okay, great. You're going to keep yourself safe from all this other stuff as well. Uh, the fact is you're actually more likely to get hit these days by some of the other stuff. But if it takes ransomware to get your attention and to stay safe, great. So be it. 
Um, but it's, it's from my perspective, that part's just a, a hair frustrating because, like I said, yep, it's malware. It's just malware um, in the worst possible sense. Back up. And that's why I was mentioning that the, 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 the day-to-day operations, that's a harder problem, right? I mean, real-time operations right. getting impacted by ransomware, that requires some different solutions. But, um, and there's a strong argument that says that things like uh, mission-critical or like life-critical uh, uh, servers and networks and such, maybe they ought not to be on the Internet, Right. Maybe there ought to be some some kind of air gapping between not even air gapping. I mean, when you think about it, there are corporate networks that are connected to the Internet and they're connected in a completely safe way. Um, Microsoft is the one I have experience with. Microsoft has a huge internal network that you can't get to from the outside. That's the way it should be. It's a problem we know how to solve. Why is that not solved in a 911 center? That money boggles the mind. Yeah, yeah, it probably does come down to exactly that. Because everybody wants lower taxes, but you know this stuff costs money, and I'm I'm on the board of two different nine one one centers that that answer emergency calls, and this is something I'm bringing up to the next meeting. That you know, what are the contingency plans? What are you doing about this? Hmm. Right when. Not if, but when something happens, what are you going to do? Exactly. Huh. Indeed. Well, so that, I, I didn't mean to, to, to go into this in any depth. I just thought it was an interesting thing to just kind of keep in the consciousness. And, you know, for, for the average person like you and me, it's all about backups. For a 911 center, yeah, it's a little bit more hairy and they, they need to uh, – have it's, some some other solutions in place, but for you know your average Joe, backups. It's it's about backup. It's about more than backups. Let's be clear, because um, you know you can back yourself well, up crazy, and, like yeah. crazy. You still need safe to be practices safe, too, right? Yep. You still need to have the anti malware software. Don't open random attachments. Don't fall for phishing. Right. Yada yada. The, the litany of stuff that are in articles like you know my internet safety article, for example. Um, but we keep coming back to those things because those are the way that these guys get in. Yep. So, yeah, so I, I'd like to see a positive story. Yes, please. <laughs> we talk about. <laughs> uh, I like to try to get it in there. The, um, uh, so Apple announced today that uh, they're 100% uh, renewable energy use. So all their offices and all their manufacturing plants and all that uh, are using looks like mostly solar power uh, for all of those. Some of those directly, like I know their new campus, uh, their 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 massive building has solar powers all over the roof, and I'm sure that doesn't cover all of it. I'm sure they have to buy solar generated energy from elsewhere. Some of their data centers and other offices also have their own solar arrays, and I'm sure they also buy solar and perhaps wind. Manufacturing concerns and other countries too, they've invested in solar to counter their energy use. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, Apple is, I guess, still the largest per capita company in the world, I think, or by some measure, it's like the largest company in the world of valuation. And they claim now to be using 100% renewable energy for everything they do. Um, 
So that's that's kind of kind of interesting. I, I myself, I wish I could say the same for me, uh, but I actually uh, live in an old neighborhood in an old part of town and an old house. And uh, it's basically if I wanted to bring it up to energy standards, um, it would kind of ruin the the antiqueness of the house. It's uh, the previous house I lived in was was much better for energy standards. And it, I don't know if it makes sense to go and do things like solar power and all that when you have massive uh, heat le- leaks through the old windows and old doorways and things like that. But uh, I sure wish there was, uh, you know, in the in the future, I hope to be 100% renewable energy at some point as well. I like to consider myself as being 100% renewable because living in the Pacific Northwest, and I suspect that uh, Kevin's in the same boat, um, but the majority, the vast majority of our electricity is hydroelectric, yeah. which when you think about it is nothing more than really, really, really slow solar. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's all really, really, really slow solar. If you think about it. Um, not quite. The, the, somebody did point out to me that, um, nuclear isn't necessarily solar. Well, didn't the, everything else, everything, especially gasoline is really, really slow solar. But didn't the uh, uranium have to, uh, re- I guess it was previous solar, right? It was in the previous uh, Ultimately, supernova explosion that our that our solar system formed out of. Go back to Big Bang. Yes, everything's Big Bang power. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, um, yeah which is a, a, a great segue. I just this one's a short one. I just I just I tickled me when I read it this afternoon. Um, I ran across the name Bluebird, and it's one of those names that we all recognize, but we don't know where from anymore. Bluebird makes school buses, and you've probably all ridden in Bluebird buses. And they're doing a uh, um, a thing where they're starting to promote electric school buses. And it dawned on me that this makes so much sense, simply because school buses have two periods each day, generally, when they're doing their thing. And it's usually, you know, 100 or 200 miles. I don't know, less than 200 miles, let's say. Almost um, always. And they spend the middle of the day idle. And of course, they spend all night idle. So when you make them electric and rechargeable, it's like the perfect scenario. These buses never, ever need gas. And they can always leave the, the bus yard with a full, quote unquote, tank of electricity. Um, I really like this. I really like the idea of making electric school buses and seeing that uh, become a little bit more um, uh, prolific on uh, on the streets. Yeah, with things like buses, I mean, part of the problem with cars, right, is where do you put all the batteries? And, you know, you have to get creative, put them under the floor, put them in the, uh, you know, where the engine would have normally been. Right. But with school buses, you have a large vehicle. You're not trying to make it an attractive, cool-looking vehicle. Put a large vehicle, you can store the batteries. Uh, you could put them all the way in the back, you can put them all in the front, you can put them underneath. Uh, you know, every every kid can hold a, a battery on his lap. It's fine. <laughs> there you go. Well, I think that, you know, the advantage of electric cars is that you put the batteries in the floor, which really lowers the center of mass. And so it's almost impossible to roll the cars over unless which you go off a cliff or something. I ran across a story. I don't have a I site. saw that too. I saw where a bus apparently rolled over. And one of the reasons they think it rolled over is because they had the batteries in the roof. Yeah, which was just moronic, if you That's ask me. That's insane. I don't understand why you put that. I mean, the center of gravity must have been at chest high when you're standing inside the bus. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, hey, no I, wonder it rolled over. And especially advantage. for... Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say another advantage to having electric-powered school buses, zero to 60 in like six seconds. <laughs> <laughs> 
All the kids in the back going, wee. Anyway. So, yeah, we're coming up on about an hour here, guys. Yeah, I think it's a little more, actually. Yeah, we're closing in on it. Somewhere in there. So what's coming up next week? What you guys got on tap this week? I know that for myself, um, I've just got my head down uh, doing Ask Leo type things because I've got some travel coming up in the coming a couple of different trips in the coming weeks. So I'm trying to uh, to fill my pipeline, my production pipeline for articles coming out and so forth. How about you guys? Yeah, I've got travel coming up too. So doing pretty much the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I'll be working on those cribbage AIs uh, <laughs> to get that, um, yeah, to get that game going. But other than that, it's a pretty, uh, pretty normal week. I have a couple of uh, more interviews uh, lined up to to do for my Atari podcast, and uh, I'm going to uh, I'm working with Gary to to do some printable puzzles, and, yeah. and uh, we're working on uh, getting those getting those online in the next few days. Very cool. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, the show notes for this week are at the – nope, that's not where they are. They're at tehpodcast.com/slash teh. 19 and we're on twitter at the teh podcast and at facebook.com slash the teh podcast thanks for listening we'll see you again here next week bye 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 everyone